We've been spending some time in the book of John here at the beginning of the year. And we've been jumping around just a little bit. I don't know if you noticed that as we went along. We've, we've been a little bit here, a little bit there. We've taken a story out of chapter 4. We've talked about the Nicodemus story in chapter 3. But there's a couple pieces we've left out as we've moved from one place to another. And, and it's a couple of these pieces that I want us to tie together today. Because interestingly, these little pieces that in some ways go unnoticed, in many ways really do capture the essence of what the whole thing has been talking about. So as we jump into this, let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, be with us now as we take a few minutes to reflect on your word. Speak to us the message you would have us here today. Help us to go home convicted on the most important points. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sabbath, I talked to you from John chapter 2, and we talked about the story of how Jesus came and, and cleared the temple of all the money changers and those who were selling animals. We talked about why they were there, what they were doing, and, and why Jesus would come and do this, and how significant Jesus doing this really was in a larger context. And one of the points we made last Sabbath is if you really want to see justice done in the world, if you really want to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, then you need a Jesus who has a little bit of power. You need a Jesus who every now and then can put together a little whip and get things going. Because what we were talking about right here, there's some bad people in the world. And they're not going to just stop what they're doing because it hurts your feelings or because it might make you feel bad. We need a Jesus with the authority and the power to bring judgment when judgment time has come. But that was a point we talked about last Sabbath. I, I want to go back to the end of that story because we didn't actually finish the chapter. So I want to go back to John chapter 2 and begin in verse 18. This is after Jesus has cleared the temple the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now, what's missing in that question that the Jews are asking is the simple reality that what Jesus is doing is the sign. This is what the Messiah will do. He will come and purify the sons of Levi. He will set things in order. Zeal for your house will consume me, Scripture had said. He is the sign. And this is a very important point for us because sometimes we get caught in this same game. Jesus, show me a magic trick that I might believe in you. Jesus says, no, I am the sign. Look at me. Look at my life. Look at what I've done. I am the sign. I am the basis of faith. So, and that's what he does with them. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They don't get it, neither do the disciples. Nobody gets this reference when Jesus makes it. Now, there's something to hang on to there. Jesus will sometimes say things to you in your life that you won't get now. But hang on to it, because someday it's going to make sense. So whatever he's told you, whatever his promises are to you, hang on to them now, even if they don't make sense now. Because one day they will. And this is what happens. 
They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The disciples didn't get it then. They got it later. And it was powerful when they got it later. That can happen in your life. So hang on to the words of Jesus, even if they don't make sense right now. One day they will. Hang on to them, and on the day they make sense to you, it will be a powerful day. But let's go on. Verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So there were some people there. Now I think some of this is probably talking about healings and other things like that. But I think also some people were actually realizing, wait a minute, this guy is doing the righteous works that the Messiah is supposed to do. They saw what he was doing and believed in him. Wouldn't it be great if we could be those kind of people who see what Jesus has done, who see what Jesus is doing, and that causes us to put our faith in him. That's who we want to be. But now look at verse 24, and this is right in the center of what we were talking about here just a few minutes ago. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. Okay, just a second ago, we were up here talking to you about scammers and about people out there who will try to lay hold of any of your success, any of your prosperity, anything about you that's good in order to get themselves ahead. Jesus knew that about people. Now, here's the funny thing about it, I think, in particular. Jesus knew about people even better than they knew about themselves. You see, it's one thing uh, to, to be deluded about someone else, but it's another thing altogether to be deluded about yourself. How much self-deceit do we live with? How much lack of knowledge of who we are? And this is why I called this message today, knowing who you are and knowing who Jesus is. We need to understand some things about ourselves. We need to spend some time being honest about ourselves and understanding as we're doing that, that Jesus already knows. So we can ask him to help us to know ourselves better. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and hopelessly wicked. Now by God's grace, that heart is turned, that heart is tempered, that heart is changed, and we can follow his will. But we have to understand that our starting point is that there's nobody we like to lie to better than we like to lie to ourselves. Make up stories about ourselves. Sometimes we lie to ourselves and run ourselves down. Sometimes we lie to ourselves and claim that our motives were better than they were. But we get caught in this. And Scripture said Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. You see, some of the people that day who were all excited about what Jesus was doing would just a short time later be standing there saying, crucify him. He knew what he was dealing with. Verse 25, he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. All right, I think there's two ways to see that statement. Number one, he knows in general the reality of humanity. And number two, he knows in specific what's going on in our lives. 
So this is a little piece that comes at the very end of this chapter where Jesus clears out the temple that, that mostly we skip over. We don't think about it. It's not really part of the story. But it is an explanation of the story that's very relevant, and it makes us aware of a couple issues that we need to keep in mind. And that is that uh, we like to lie to ourselves. We don't know ourselves very well. And Jesus is smart not to entrust himself to us because we're not reliable sometimes. But now, the very next thing that will happen as kind of an extension of what's going on here is the story of Nicodemus. Now, we spent some time talking about Nicodemus. Jesus meets him in the night. They talk. They go back and forth. How can I be born again when I'm an old man? And Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. He's trying to talk about the very basic realities. And it is in this context, then, that we get that most famous of Bible verses, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that comes in this next story. Nicodemus, no doubt, was likely at the temple when all these things happened. And it seems from the context of the story that this encounter took place fairly soon afterward. He's like, I'm going to find out for myself. So we give Nicodemus credit for going to the source to find out for himself. And Nicodemus is an example of one of those people that doesn't necessarily get it instantly, but he stays with it, and in the end is a faithful follower of Jesus. But there are some more words that take place in chapter 3. You see, we have the Nicodemus story, and then we tend to jump directly to chapter 4, which is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. We talked about that already as well. But there's another piece at the end of John chapter 3. So I want to go there right now. John chapter 3, verse 22. And I want to think about this in the context of what we just said. About Jesus knowing what was in people. About us knowing who we are. And about knowing Jesus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. All right, so we're talking about John the Baptist here. You remember in the early chapters, John the Baptist identifies Jesus. In fact, he says, the reason I came baptizing was so that he would be identified. So John the Baptist is still out there. He's still preaching his message of repentance. He's still baptizing people in a form of a ritual cleansing, which is really basically what it was. But now Jesus is out there as well with his disciples, and they're at another point along the river, and they're both baptizing people at this time. Let's go on here. Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now this is an interesting point, and this happens sometimes between followers of a certain person and followers of another person. It's very easy for us to get the idea of of teams, right? I'm on the John the Baptist team. Baptizing is our thing. Get your own thing right? It's kind of funny sometimes when when people who aren't necessarily part of our community start maybe believing some of the stuff that 
that maybe we as Adventists believe, and, and instead of celebrating that, we're a little bit like, those are our doctrines, get your own doctrines. You're not allowed to believe our stuff. It happens. It comes from a good thing. Loyalty is a good thing, right? But it can get out of balance. And so here, here is this strife. And apparently there was this argument between a certain Jew and, and these disciples of John. And, and this Jew is saying, well, this is ridiculous what you're doing. And they're saying, no, it's really important. It's about confession. And then he's saying, well, that guy Jesus is doing it. I guess anybody can do this, right? Why don't I start doing it? And they come back to John and they say, hey, our whole thing is falling apart here. Verse 27, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. Now let's take a look at a couple really hard things about the reality of the story of John the Baptist. Mostly when we tell a story about someone's life before they met Jesus and then after they met Jesus, it's usually the story goes, their life was a train wreck, they met Jesus, everything turned around and now everything's great. That's the normal story and, and that's how most Bible stories go. That's not how the John the Baptist story goes. Here's how the John the Baptist story goes. John the Baptist had a glorious ministry going on that was having a powerful impact. He met Jesus, and after that, everything started to fall apart. Right? In fact, that story is so true that John the Baptist could not even outlive Jesus. Maybe you think it was just, just a terrible reality that, that Herod would come along and John the Baptist would be killed. Yes, it was a terrible reality. But here's the greater truth behind it. If John the Baptist had outlived Jesus, what would have happened after Jesus died? Everybody would have gone back to John the Baptist. And that was not his calling. That was not his role. That's a very sobering point, isn't it? That to embrace the calling of God might mean that it's essential that there's a point where my ministry ends so that his can go on. We don't like to think that way. We like to think of the story of my role keeps getting bigger and bigger. My part keeps getting better and better. But here is John the Baptist, who Jesus will call the greatest of the prophets. And as soon as he meets Jesus, he has to start shrinking. There's another angle on this. It says the, uh, the, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. What he's talking about here is Jesus is the bridegroom. And, and this whole image will get expanded to where the church will be called the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. We have to keep this in mind. We have to keep this in mind as church leaders. We have to keep this in mind as church members. 
As much as we love this community that we call the church, it does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. And as much as we try to be the right kind of leaders in a community like this, to make the right kind of decisions, to to make it the best bride of Christ we can possibly make it, we have to be careful because what we might end up doing is making it the best bride for ourselves and not for Jesus. But the bride is not for us. In fact, we're the bride. (laughs) Maybe think of it that way. We're the ones that are for Jesus. And when it becomes too much about the leaders or too much about what we like best or too much about ourselves, it goes back to that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of people. Sometimes we are so self-deceived that we are strangling the life out of Jesus' church thinking we're saving it. It can be painful to be the friend of the bridegroom, especially if you loved the bride yourself. Can you imagine that? Imagine that imagery. You're a person, you're in love with this woman, but she's actually in love with your best friend. And your best friend asks you to be the best man at the wedding. That's a little hard. That can be hard. But that's not any harder than what John the Baptist had to do. He had to see this ministry he built piece by piece fall apart and as it fell apart and as the crowds that used to gather around him got smaller and smaller and started gathering around Jesus he had to be able to say to himself yes it's working it's working they're going to Jesus he must become greater I must become less Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what has been seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is kind of a summation. This is a wrap-up of the whole reality of the ministry of John. He came to prepare the way, and he came to point to Jesus And he came to say, he has come from above. The one who comes after me is greater than me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He's from above. He stood in the presence of God. He knows things I cannot know. Go to him. Everyone who will go to him has eternal life. Everyone who rejects does not. This theme, these words about the role of faith in this whole experience, they come up repeatedly. We see it in John 3, 16 through 19. We talked about this last Sabbath. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world 
but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It's the same message, isn't it? It's exactly what John the Baptist is saying. Here you hear Jesus saying it. Go back to chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 9. At the very introduction, we talked about this several weeks ago. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. It's that same message repeated again and again and again. In fact, the whole point of John's book, John chapter 20, Beginning in verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Where's your hope? Where's your confidence? How well do you know yourself? How well do you know Jesus? Do you know the deceitfulness of your own heart? I take you back to John chapter 3 verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. If, if, you wanted, if you wanted proof of that text, it would be hard to give you any better evidence of that than social media. You see, social media has contributed in a lot of positive ways. There's a lot of really neat things about staying in contact and, and seeing pictures of, of your family when you can't be around them, and watching funny videos about cats. I mean, it's been great. But there's another side to it, isn't there? And that side is that it gives me a chance to be mean and ugly without you knowing who I am. You seen the ugliness that goes on? We even have a word for it, trolling. You see, when the lights are off, what's really in our hearts comes out. And that's one of the things that's been exposed in this last day in the interactions that have taken place is the fact that you don't know who I am means that I can be as mean and ugly to you as I want to be. And it turns out we want to be pretty mean and ugly. I hope you're not one of those people that's doing that. And if you are, I hope you will take that very seriously in your heart and say, whoa, how in the world am I putting ugliness like that on paper? Is that really in my heart? Because out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And if you are spewing ugliness, even on people who are wrong, 
There was, a, there was a great cartoon once I saw a guy just typing madly, and his wife said, go to sleep. And he said, I can't. Someone on the Internet is wrong. Well, you're never going to sleep then. Are you spewing ugliness anywhere in your life? This is not a good sign. This is not a sign of health. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Okay, here's what you need to take home. Jesus knows everything about you. Everything about your life is taking place in the sight of God. You may think you're hiding in the shadows, but there is no darkness from the vision of heaven. Jesus has come into the world as light. And when you know you're in the presence of Jesus, you know the realities of your heart are exposed. If in that moment your impulse is confession and Lord help me to be who I most want to be, which is a follower of you, faithful in all my ways. If that's your impulse, then you are standing in the light even though you're not perfect. Your desire is to be aligned with God. Keep yourself in the light, and he will shine his light on you, and you will be transformed from the inside out. That's the point of the Holy Spirit. He comes into us and fills us and transforms us. But if you know you're standing before God, and you know that in your heart there are things contrary to his purpose that you want more than his will then your impulse will be to shrink from the light and hide. The, the very simple way it's described in the Bible later on is they rush to the hills and they call upon the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. That's the same impulse. And this is where knowing yourself is important. If what you truly want at the deepest part of you is to be in harmony with God and to live in harmony and as a part of his kingdom, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, to love your neighbor as yourself, if this is your deepest desire, then you will be drawn to the light of Jesus and you will continually try to draw closer. But if those two things are not your deepest desire, if instead you have other plans for your life, you have other purposes, you have other things you want to be about, then the presence of Jesus will always be an offense to you and you will try to hide. There's lots of ways to hide. One of the ways we hide is with covering ourselves with legalistic good works. It doesn't work. Jesus sees our hearts. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What do you want most? If what you want most is what Jesus came to bring us, life, meaning, 
salvation, hope. Then come into that light. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray here. And in this prayer, I'm going to leave a minute in the prayer for you to pray your own heart. I'm going to pray that that in this moment, this would be a moment of the light of Jesus in this place. And that we could each pray our heart. And that if what we do truly want most is to be connected eternally with Jesus and a part of his kingdom, that he will make us those promises and give us that confidence that by hanging on and believing, he will get us through whatever comes. But if that's not really where your heart is today, I want you to at least know yourself before you leave. I hope that we'll walk out of here, each one of us, knowing for sure where we stand and what we need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray right now that you'll come into this room and to wherever else my voice is heard at this moment, and that you will be there by the powerful presence of your Holy Spirit, that you will be as a bright light before our eyes, that lays bare all the pretense, all the lies, all the phoniness about us that others might not be able to see from the outside. But Lord Jesus, you know us. You know about us. Look right now upon our hearts and see the true realities within us. And what is our deepest desires? Now, Lord, we each, in this silence, will speak to you about our hearts. Lord, it could be some of us have started a conversation with you right now that needs to go on today. And I pray that it will. And I pray that every one of us will desire to live and walk in the light of Jesus. And that by believing, we will be your bride. We will be a part of your kingdom. We will live with Jesus forever. In his name we pray. Amen.